Hey, I'm gonna fix that loose baseboard upstairs. Wow, look at you. All sweaty with your tool belt and your 90s haircut. You look like you're in a gay porno. Oh, yeah? You're one to talk, buddy. I'm Brent. I'm the new guy on the crew. I'm Rod. I'm the boss. And what I say goes. I've never been with a man before. Looks like I'm the boss now, Rod. Oh, what are you doing? I don't know. Whatever. Let's wrestle. It doesn't matter. It's only a model. Welcome to Welcome to Storybrook. I'm Max. And I'm Tina. And this is episode three of season five. Which means that we are on chapter three of book seven, It's Only a Model. Yep. And uh, I feel like this episode was almost entirely carried by gay subtext. Uh, you mean gay baiting? Hmm, yes. This season is really bad about the... There's definitely a romantic relationship between David and Arthur, except not really because this is ABC and we would never put a canonically queer relationship at the forefront of a series. We'll like have a character declare that they're gay and then disappear forever. Well, did ABC do the Fosters? You know, the Fosters are on ABC Family. Yeah. So it's just this show. What's up with this show? There's so much gay baiting in this show. Yeah, I really feel like... Maybe at the end of last season, at some point, the writer's kids showed them Tumblr, and they're like, oh, I get what what we need to do now. They're like, oh, I see what the fans want. And it's like, no, no, we want actual textual K relationships. Hey, Supernatural's got, like, what, 17 seasons? Can Supernatural vote yet? I feel like Supernatural's getting really close to being able to vote. I think Supernatural can drink. Wow. But yeah, they're they're even worse over at Supernatural, as far as the gay baiting goes. Mm. I mean, I don't want to get into it because it's not our show, and I don't want to get into some sort of fandom war, but they're really bad over there. I haven't seen it since, you know. Like the third season? Yeah, I haven't seen it in over ten years. Oh my god. I had... I haven't seen it since I graduated college. All right. Let's talk about our show. I actually might not have seen it since I left for college. (laughs) Wait, what is time? Oh my god, what is time? So, anyway, this episode. So while we were watching this episode, I think I figured out why we seemed to be enjoying the show so much while we were watching it back when it first aired. And I at least am not really into it right now. No. Yeah, I think I figured it out. I really remembered enjoying the Dark Emma stuff more, but I also remembered it being more of the central part of this. Well, the stuff with Emma, the scenes themselves are great. It's just that they're not tying together into a great story, and because we've already seen it all, we know that they're not going to be a great story. Yeah, like, I guess if maybe it seemed like they were... Is this the Chris Carter effect where it seems really cool until you know that there was actually not a giant plan connecting everything together and it was just random garbage being thrown on screen? Um, That was the Chris Carter thing, right? Like it seemed like there was something big happening behind everything and then there just wasn't. Well, I mean, that was also the lost effect. So 
I don't think we have anyone to blame here but ourselves. Mm. All right, let's get into this episode. So, as a reminder, Emma Swan is now the Dark One, and she's kind of mad at... It seemed like she was mad at the whole Storybook crew, but I guess it's mostly just Regina and Mary, Margaret, and David. Also, Merlin is stuck in a tree. Or maybe is a tree. In the Camelot flashbacks, Merlin is stuck in a tree, or possibly is a tree, and the Storybook crew has to figure out how to untreeify him. De-woody him. They have to help Merlin disembark. No, we're done with the show. Show's over. So, the dwarves are mining in the mines for, I guess, more fairy dust, because... Yeah, we open with the dwarves in the mine whistling hi-ho. As they do. As they do. And mining for fairy dust, and I guess Grumpy's the overseer, which, okay, sure. And he's telling them that they need to mine faster because they still need to make their quota, even though Dopey is also a tree, or possibly trapped in a tree. And, okay insensitive because dude might be dead but also yeah who is demanding all of this fairy dust again this really feels like we should have got a last season reveal that blue is i don't know that blue is actually the big bad and she's been sort of just laying low when she's around the heroes or at the very least if they're not going to buy into our blue is evil theory we should know what blue is working on that's demanding such high quantities of fairy dust happy makes a really dark joke at the expense of poor fallen dopey i mean i guess not a uh, fallen because he's a tree so grumpy says that since dopey can't be productive they have to be more productive and happy says he's producing oxygen since Dopey can't contribute, they're going to have to all contribute. That's... The whole thing is, wow, Happy, that's pretty messed up. Is he? Is that supposed to be him being an optimist there? Oh, wow, I think maybe it is. Because that is that's... not how it comes off. That's even darker. That means the show thinks that being happy means not acknowledging that your friend might have been mystically killed when you pushed him over the town line. Your brother which will come back later this episode, but only in a sort of brief, weird way. Well, it will come back when you and I go off on a tangent about what it means to have a birthday when you're a dwarf. Mm. But Emma jump cuts into the scene and she's like, hmm, would it perhaps help you boys if I chewed on some scenery? Yeah, she shows up and she's being all evil and Grumpy's like, you can't have any of this dust. And she reveals that what she actually wants is Happy's axe. (gasps) Which, you know, he really shouldn't have just left lying around. I guess he's doing some sort of shovel work right now. Yeah, he's holding a shovel. And this is what I'm talking about. I love this sequence, even though I know it amounts to nothing. Emma says, you know, I learned as the dark one. She leans in real close and whispers into Happy's ear. You should keep a close eye on anything with your name on it. And then she takes the happy axe. And vamps away. Back in the Camelot flashback, everyone is in Merlin's laboratory trying to figure out how to get Merlin out of the tree. And all the women are being gigantic magic nerds. It's Star Trek techno babble, but with magic. I actually really love it. I, God, why can't the show just be all of the attractive women on the show wearing attractive medieval dresses, being awesome magic nerds? That's, that's, let's do that show. Maybe that's what the new Charmed will be. I would like, because... 
I would really like a show that was just basically about magical grad students. Isn't that what The Magicians is? In theory, yes. We should give it a chance. I hear it's so much better than the books. I've heard that too, and maybe I wasn't being fair with it the first time I watched it. Christina Strain writes for it. I don't know who that is. Oh, she's great. I I forget what she worked on that I really liked, but she worked on something that I really liked. I think it was that Gen X book that everyone was talking about. Oh, okay. But in Roland's lab, the reason it's so important that they use his books and figure out how to get him out is that they have lied and said that Regina is the savior, so now they have to figure this out so that Regina can rescue him. And Emma's all like, well, why don't I just Samantha Stevens him out of there? Yeah, just wiggle my nose and then, bamf, won't be a tree anymore. And they remind her that she has evil magic and on this show, magic is good or evil, regardless of what you actually do with it. So using her magic, even to free Merlin, something that is objectively good, will cause her to become more evil. Yeah. God, I just... I just... Ugh. It's classic charmed rules, you know? Orbing is good teleportation. Blinking is bad teleportation. They do the same thing, but one makes you evil. I I hate magic rules that don't have... Nuance. While the women are, you know, doing research and working hard, David's just kind of standing in the background, rolling his eyes throughout this scene. I mean, I think he's taking care of baby Neil. He's... Let's not undervalue childcare. No, we shouldn't. But just his expressions, he just doesn't seem like he's respecting what's going on here. Yeah, that's probably true. Also, he doesn't respect his daughter, and he tells Emma that Regina is right and she should do nothing. And then Arthur shows up from a tired sitcom to be like, Oh, I heard someone say a woman's right. That's always a safe bet. Uh, Hey, have we ever talked about misogyny in the uh, gay community? Uh, not on the air. I don't know what brought that to mind. Yeah, yeah, so... Arthur wants to check on the progress of getting Merlin out. And they tell him to back off because it is hard work to get a man out of a tree. And Mary Margaret offers the super unhelpful suggestion. Oh, if only we could ask him how to get him out of the tree since he's the one who knows how to get him out of the tree. And Regina is great here. She's like, oh my god, Mary Margaret, you briefly weren't a complete and total idiot. She identifies this mushroom, this toadstool, which seriously looks like the grow mushroom from Super Mario Brothers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's the red mushroom with white spots and she's like oh this mushroom allows us to talk across realms so and through spells sure why not so it's actually the wording is actually across barriers so yeah through spells makes sense so they realize that this toadstool is the answer to their problems and Regina draws a question mark on a piece of scrap paper and bookmarks that page. Handy. Yeah. And Arthur seizes, seizes perilously on this opportunity to go with David off into the woods. Okay, I don't get this scene because Arthur's like, oh, those mushrooms, I heard they were just a myth, but here's the exact location they would be if they were real. Um... 
that's so funny because there's actually even this scene actually bothers me even more because Arthur says, oh, I hear these mushrooms are a myth. And David's like, well, you know where we come from? We're myths. And it's like, that's not. No, don't start doing that, David. Things are allowed to not exist. Also, let Henry be the genre savvy one, okay? You don't have it in you. Okay. Do you remember Jackie Chan used to have his own, his own cartoon? Are you talking about the Jackie Chan Adventure Show, of which I have two t-shirts? Yes. Yes. Yes, I am. Well, my favorite slash the only episode of that show I actually remember is the one where the villains he was fighting were trying to get control of Stonehenge for this mystical ceremony. Okay. And it's the one episode where he ends up not stopping the villains. Uh-huh. They get control of it. They do the mystic ceremony and literally nothing happens. And they're like, but it said this in this book. And his mentor person was like, you can write anything in a book. And that was my favorite thing. Because like, even in a world where this stuff is real, myths should exist. Yeah. Because of the way people work. Yeah, people should say all sorts of untrue things all the time. Hmm. Foreshadowing, maybe? Yeah. Nah. Uh, I think any time you want to give this show credit for foreshadowing, in this season, anyway. I should not? Yes. Well, anyway, David takes the opportunity to get out of there. He throws his baby at the nearest person and storms off. So that he can go find the, so that he can go find the toadstool, which, by the way, is half a day's ride away. Yes, finally came back. Finally. Yes, everything in Once Upon a Time is half a day's ride away. Except when they forget. Except when they forget. Anyway, David goes to... So Anyway, David takes off and Arthur follows him. And David says, don't try to stop me. And Arthur's like, no, I thought we could go on a quest together. He tells David that if they're going to go questing, they have to get properly outfitted. And he does the Poe looking at Finn in his jacket thing. The biting his lip thing. Anyway, so he's going to go dress David up all fancy before he takes him out in the woods. Yeah, he is. Meanwhile, in Storybrooke, six weeks later, Regina is discovering that same page in the book, and she recognizes her own question mark on the scrap paper, so she thinks this toadstool might be the answer to what has happened to them. Boy, it's too bad she didn't leave, like, more detailed notes. They've had amnesia so many times on this show. I would just be constantly- I'd be mementoing everything. There's an episode of Weird Science, the TV show that was on USA based on the movie. Hmm. Where the characters do get amnesia, and it's revealed that one of the characters keeps detailed journal entries of every single day, tracking, like, literally everything he's done and everything people have said in case of amnesia. Yeah, it's it's just, this is, what, the fourth time everyone's got amnesia? Yeah, they should, they should all have memento-style tattoo sleeves. Not to go on a tangent. What? But in light of the recent remake of uh overboard yeah is, uh-huh. it, is it overboard it's overboard yeah uh, could you make a not creepy take on weird science um the tv show is actually pretty not creepy they didn't create a woman to have sex with they did and she refused to have sex with them that's what made it not creepy. Mm. Like, they built a woman and she showed up and was like, hey, I'm a super powerful woman and I have agency. So I'll grant wishes, but only to the extent that pleases me. 
Hmm. So you you ready for a weird science remake? Because it's kind of inevitable at this point, right? I think it kind of is. Although we know how computers work now. I. In the age of personal computers, watching two nerds mystically create a woman by loading bras into a hard drive. Okay, they put the bras on their head. They hooked up a Barbie doll to the hard drive. No, because that's the greatest part at the end. In your mad rush to power, you forgot one thing. You forgot to hook up the doll. You forgot to hook up the doll. Wait, have you actually seen the movie Weird Science? I have because I know how it begins, but I have no memories past that's not how computers work. But I swear I have seen the whole movie and I just don't remember anything past them with bras on their heads bringing the woman to life. Okay, I we, we should maybe even watch... I'm, I'm going to watch a couple episodes of the TV series and see if it stands up. Because the TV series is a lot less creepy because, like I said, the woman has agency. Um, I thought she didn't sleep with them in the movie either. She doesn't she doesn't sleep in the movie she tries to sleep with them and they turn her down because mm, they're basically her dads well they created her to help to help them figure out how to get girls mm. they, they weren't interested in having sex with her in one of the episodes she makes a robot for one of the guys to date and he falls in love with her and you know yeah and and the robot has agency so it's not like a creepy warren from buffy thing they fall in love with each other and he realizes he can't be with her because she's a robot. So he tells her, he decides to tell her that she's a robot and he can't be with her because she's a robot. And she's like, whoa, 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 you're not a robot? And he's like, no. And she's like, I'm sorry, I'm looking for something long term and your body's going to die in like 60 years. Uh, that kind of happened to Jimmy Olsen. His fan club uh, built him a robot to make uh, Lucy Lane jealous. Mm-hmm. He didn't know it was a robot. He thought it was a Viking princess he found, because that's the sort of thing that happens to Jimmy Olsen. You know, you saying this is making me realize that a lot of plots from Weird Science could have also been plots from Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, and now I'm wondering if it wasn't a giant troll where somebody was just doing a stealth remake of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen and seeing if anyone would ever notice. I would, to the shock of no one, I would definitely watch a remake of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen if it was super loyal. No offense to fans of the new Supergirl show, but he has not cross-dressed once in a single episode I've seen. You know what would be awesome? What? A incredibly faithful Silver Age adaptation of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, but with the actor who plays James Olsen in Supergirl. Oh... I don't know. Do you think that would work? I I would I would watch every episode to find out. How, how many times does Jimmy Olsen go shirtless in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen? Uh, he got turned into a genie a whole bunch, so. All right. Yeah, let's do that. And he was a boxer and he went back in time and created the Beatles back in Roman times. Oh my god. I don't think you can really be a Beatle with it. He had the Beatle wig and he had a shofar, and I'm like, I don't think you can do a good take on Beatles music with a shofar. Uh, I don't know. You Link would... to me if you do. What? Is there a shofar cover of the Beatles that you're... No, I'm just saying you absolutely could. Like, that would be really great. 
So do you want to go back in time and see Jimmy Olsen's Beatles tribute band before the uh, Beatles existed? I, I wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't mind that at all. Uh, Where were we? Oh, right. So they're in the police station looking over Regina's incredibly unhelpful notes from the uh, lost period of time in Camelot when Grumpy comes in to complain. Not just Grumpy, but all of the dwarves. He comes in yelling, we've been violated, which is not what you should run into a police station yelling if someone has stolen something from you, but okay. Actually, I feel really uncomfortable with that because I think the show thinks it's funny to imply that it sounds like they've been sexually assaulted when, in fact, his pickaxe was stolen, and I'm not comfortable with that joke. Yeah. But also, no one wants to deal with the dwarves. Regina's like, um, Snow, this is your deal. And Snow's like, um, we don't care. Yeah, Snow's just like, okay, good to know. I'll leave a note here on my invisible typewriter. And Grumpy's like, you're, you need to, you need to help us with this. You guys are nominally in charge of the town. And your daughter has become a super evil thing floating around town committing crimes. Like, you need to do something here. And David's like, yeah, but on the other hand, do we? And they kind of, the dwarves kind of realize there's nothing they can do and they all leave. And Snow White's like, oh, don't worry, it's just the dwarves. Who cares what they think? David angrily takes off his coat, goes into the sheriff's office and starts throwing around furniture like a giant baby. It's awesome. Yeah. He's like... He's like, so we should be worried that our daughter's going around stealing axes, right? And Mary Margaret's like, that seems like it would take a lot of effort. Like, I don't know. Can't we just kind of do nothing but stand in the background and react to stuff? Well, so David says, I just feel so helpless, you know, because he's not, he feels like there's nothing he can do. And Snow White tells him his job is to just be a leader. And David says, well, but nobody's following me. When is it his job to be a leader? He hasn't led since Emma took control back in the Peter Pan season. Also, it's not his job. If anything, it's Mary Margaret's job. Yeah, she's the queen. She was, in theory, raised to do this sort of thing. Didn't she fight a war so that she could be in charge? How many people died so she could take the kingdom back from Regina? Only to immediately hand Regina back power whenever Mary Margaret gets thrust into a position of authority. Ugh. Anyway, it's terrible. They don't know what they're doing. Mary Margaret's like, don't worry. It's gonna work out for Emma because she's half us. And things always work out for us. Well, I mean, she's all them, but... Oh, poor Emma. Poor Emma, indeed. She is a miracle. She is proof of nurture over nature. She's so lucky she wasn't raised by them, as we will see in a later season. So, luckily for David, he took one of those uh, missing persons pictures that we have mentioned you should take of your friends and loved ones in case they disappear, so that the camera has something to dramatically pan to while you're, you know... When they're missing or have turned evil. Mm. What is way more important about this uh, shot, however, the picture of David and Emma is right above a flyer for a bike safety fair that was sponsored by the Storybrooke Sheriff's Department. I I can't even begin, I can't even begin to imagine what that must have looked like. 
There's also a business card for someone named, or a missing persons thing for someone named Melissa Liu. Yes. I don't get what that's about. I, I thought it might be a reference to something, but I couldn't find anything. I think, I think this is just set dressing without meaning. I think you and I are so used to animated shows where everything has meaning that when it's, when the set is just dressed, we, we get disappointed. I was watching an episode of Battlestar Galactica, the new one, mm-hmm. and there was a stack of books and I was so sure that the stack of books was going to have some meaning that even though the camera only flashed on them for a second, I kept trying to pause it so I could get, you know, the books. And when I finally got it, it wasn't anything important or interesting. It was, They were literally just those faux leather-bound Reader's Digest condensed novels. Because uh. it was like something they had in the prop room that looked novelly to... To sit on top of Adama's desk. It was really disappointing. Mm-hmm. I, I Do you feel like that's out of character for him to have those versions of those books? Um, well, yeah, because they're in space. They're predecessors to our civilization, so Reader's Digest condensed books should not exist. Fair. Anyway, my point is I don't think that Melissa Lou missing persons flyer means anything. Yeah, I don't either. When Emma remade the town, she stripped a lot of the uh, cool fairy tale references and just replaced them with generic things. I think that that's true. Anyway, Arthur comes in. Because his reliquary's been robbed. David doesn't know what a reliquary is, which I feel like he should, but... Uh, no, David shouldn't know that. Because relics are religious in nature. And can we just open up this can of worms right now? Oh, yeah. Okay. We're going to open up this can of worms, and later on in the episode of Burning Bush is going to crawl out of it. Mm. But King Arthur has a reliquary, uh, basically a chest that holds all of the relics that the knights have collected over the years. He said items of magical or religious significance. And so really it's his magic item chest, but King Arthur is a story that is seeped in both Christian mythology and the history of England. And you know what doesn't exist in the Enchanted Forest? England and Jesus. Although we're getting hints that Jesus exists. I mean, uh, again, I know we've talked about this so many times, but the fact that Mary Margaret's kingdom is a polytheistic society makes a lot of the King Arthur stuff awkward because as we will see in the second half of this season, the Greek religion's the right one. Uh, I think it's one of the right ones. Yeah, it, it might be a Marvel and DC, all religions are valid and true. Yeah, I think that's the deal. Anyway, the the relevant fact here, though, is that King Arthur had a magic bean in his reliquary, and it has been stolen. <gasps> yeah. How's David going to get rid of Arthur now? Oh, I guess he can't. Oh, dear. Okay, again... We're going to go from this to another scene with Emma that is a great scene that I am having difficulty enjoying because I know it doesn't add up to anything. But Emma comes down to the basement where you'll recall Excalibur is trapped in the stone. Now, she's got the dwarf's pickaxe, which as a reminder can break through anything, including 
as we saw at the end of the Peter Pan season, curses. But the dark one rumple that she has in her head tells her that it can't break through magic. Okay, whatever. Whatever. It, yeah. It's like, it can't break through anything except magic, except we've seen it do that before, but whatever. He also says the only thing that can break through magic is true love's kiss, and then suggests that she try kissing Excalibur, which is so funny. <laughs> yeah, Emma breaks the pickaxe on the sword in the stone, and, uh... So I guess Happy has no soul now? Yeah, how, how does that work again? I mean, those pickaxes were magically connected to them, and now, what? I guess he has to find a new name, because when Grumpy was dreamy, his pick... Uh, his pickaxe broke when his personality changed. Do you think Happy's just going to get a whole new personality? May Does it go both ways? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we saw him make the joke about Dopey producing oxygen. Maybe he'll go pick up a blank pickaxe and the word snarky will appear on it. Mm. The new dwarf snarky. Maybe he can just use Anton's axe. I can't even. I mean, I guess it makes sense they would ditch Anton, though, because... What's Hurley up to? Is is he in a new show? I think he was in a new show, but actually my point was he's a giant, so maybe he can't go into the mines. Wait, no, he's not a giant in this realm. Never mind! Yeah, remember, he got incorporated into the dwarves group. He even got his own mystical pickaxe and everything. Yeah, he got a name, Tiny. Mm. Which he's not compared to the other dwarves. I guess Doc isn't a personality trait either. Neither so... is Sneezy! No, oh, his personality. Sneezing. <laughs> you know, like that one kid in Billy Owens. The Canadian uh, Harry Potter ripoff. Uh-huh. You know, there was... Mandy, that that movie, uh, that universe is Hermione because she's the smart girl, and there was the other kid who was like Ron, except they didn't read the books hard enough to know what Ron did, so his personality was just sneezing a lot. So Rumpel tells Emma that she's running out of options. Is she? I don't know. I don't know what kind of time limit they're on, but Rumpel tells her that they need to find a hero. They need to find someone. With a pure soul who can pull Excalibur from the, you know, rock. Stone. Uh, he says that this is to fulfill their goal of exterminating all goodness or extinguishing all light or, I don't know, some real shit strawberry shortcake would fight. Now, it's not someone who has a pure soul that they need to pull out Excalibur. It's the future king of England. Well, he says a true hero. Again, it's not a true hero. It's the true king. So it really should be Wyatt Hollowell. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Get Wyatt Hollowell up in here. Anyway, in the Camelot flashback. <sighs> We're having a Robin Regina scene. Yeah, they need to talk about how they feel about the fact that, you know, Zelina raped him and is pregnant with his child now yeah now regina put her on mute last episode i you're right she put her on mute at the time i thought she might be force choking her but you're right she just stole her voice a la ariel which is kind of great yeah uh she tries to have a conversation with zelina but it's kind of one-sided 
since Zelina can't talk, so Regina returns her voice, and Zelina's first action, now that she is revoiced, is to make fun of Regina's deep, sexy... Throaty voice? Yeah, Kathleen Turner, Jessica Rabbit voice. Because Zelina's like, oh, I missed my voice, it's so light and feminine. And it's like, mm, yeah, but, you know... Yeah, the rest of... Shut up. Yeah. And everything else she has to say isn't less stupid either. She is insisting that she needs the baby because the baby's the only person who will ever really love her. And also that Regina always gets everything and she never gets anything. Which a very casual... A thing which a casual glance at this show would tell you is not accurate. But whatever. Regina takes her voice again. And we don't have to listen to this drivel anymore. Motherfucker, you lived in a castle. You owned your own country. Don't go all, oh, boo-hoo, poor me. Like, yeah, you had an abusive parent. So did she. Ugh. And she got child married. Yeah, Regina got child married. She got, like... I, I'm not trying to downplay the emotional abuse it's... Selena went through, but it's not, like... It's not oppression Olympics over here, but, you know, you'd lose, so stop. Yeah, not to be mean, but get over it. Come on, everyone has their issues. And she's like, I, I'm owed a second chance. And Regina's like, you're on, like, chance 50. Like, you literally just stabbed us in the back, like, two episodes ago. Also... You haven't shown any desire to change, so a chance to... You you deserve a second chance to kill everyone? Like, I, I think... I think Selena thinks that a second chance means a second chance at fulfilling my evil plans, not a chance to become a better person. Yeah, I just... I don't get her. Ugh. So, King Arthur brings David to the room of pointy objects with which to murder things, and David's face lights up as though he were a small child in some sort of candy shop. Yes, he's very excited to see all of these pointy objects. And this is also the round table room, so David immediately notices the empty chair of the man that he killed last episode. The shieldless chair. The two of them are in this room alone. But one of the chairs has had its shield removed, and he's like, oh, is that from that guy I killed? Remember that guy I killed? I just stabbed him, and he all bled everywhere, and he was like, that guy? And Arthur's like, you don't have to apologize anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't, didn't really sound like he was apologizing in the first place. He was just pointing stuff out. But... He has never apologized for anything. Anyway, King Arthur's like, yeah, this is our table. This is our round table. And this massive fancy chair... David's like, ah, oh, it's your chair because you're the king, right? And he's like, no, no, no. This is my special chair for my special man friends. Okay, no, this is really weird. He says that the special chair was for Lancelot. And, I mean, I know... I know the show is already going to deviate far, far from the King Arthur mythology anyway. A thing which is itself not set in stone, as it were. <laughs> But it's the round table. The, the, the chair that's a chair that's distinctive at the round table 
is dumb. And King Arthur insisting that that's not his chair, it was the chair for Lancelot because his chair is just like everyone else's. Okay. So everyone's equal except for that one dude who's more equal than everyone else because I said so. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Anyway, that was Lancelot's chair and we get this weird rehashing where David's like, oh yeah, I I read about that back in the land without where David's like, oh yeah, yeah, I read about how uh, he boned your wife back in the land without magic when I was flipping through the more d'arteur. Okay, but like, when you met Lancelot way back when, you knew who he was just because you guys lived in the same general area. Also, not to get ahead of this season, but did Lancelot seem like the kind of person who would bone his best friend's wife? Not particularly. I mean, he was he wasn't around very long. Also, I know David that you heard this story in the world without magic, but also you've heard lots of stories in the world without magic and know that they don't align exactly with what went down in the enchanted forest. So you're just telling this guy that Lancelot banged his wife without any real evidence, and I mean. Arthur's like, yes, that is what happened, so you got lucky, is what I'm saying. You got lucky that that is what happened, and you got lucky that Arthur already knew it, and that this wasn't some new information you were bringing to him. David also tells Arthur that uh, he did meet Lancelot briefly, and Arthur's like, oh, how is he? And David's like, oh, yeah, he's, he, he's, he's dead. And then Arthur's sad because he's like, yeah, Lancelot was a good dude, other than the banging my wife thing. Honestly, I was a terrible husband. Can't even blame him for banging my wife. By the way, the special chair that uh, Lancelot was sitting on, the chair that's better than all the other chairs at the round table, is the Siege Perilous, which, since I only know things about comic books, I'm assuming uh, if you sit on it, it gives you an entirely new life with new memories, but your body, it distills you down to your quintessential fundamental being and then builds you a new life based off of the fundamental aspects of your personality. X-Men's weird, yo. So the Siege Perilous actually is a thing in the Arthurian legends. I assumed it was because it's from Captain Britain and Captain Britain is basically built off ripping off the Arthurian legends. Okay, but I do kind of want to bring in what it is. Okay. The Siege Perilous was for the knight who would get the Holy Grail. Mm -hmm. And I think we've like briefly hinted at this before, but I just kind of want to say it right now so that... Go for it. Okay. The interesting thing about the King Arthur legend is that the story everyone knows, one of the main story, one of the two stories everyone knows, there's the one about Lancelot and Guinevere, and the other one is about the quest for the Holy Grail. Mm -hmm. And the Holy Grail which is the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper and that was also used to catch his blood as he was dying on the cross. Yes. And that Mary Magdalene took and fled to France with. That's the Holy Grail. And the only way that you could get the Holy Grail, the only way that God would illuminate the path to it for you and that you would get it would be if you were worthy of it. If you were a good and decent person and you were religious and righteous and you were worthy of receiving the Holy Grail. 
And the thing that's interesting about the Arthurian legends is that the knights, by their very nature, are flawed humans who are distinctly the inappropriate choice to search for the Holy Grail. One of the knights is a decent enough human that he is allowed to see it on his deathbed and but not possess it. And that's basically it. So nobody can sit on the siege perilous. That's kind of my point. So you're saying it's not a mystical portal that gives you a brand new life. That is correct. Also, as everyone... Comics lying. (laughs) Comics are lying to you, yeah. And I mean, I bring this up because I would like our listeners to have this background of knowledge about the Holy Grail. Although our listeners are really smart. I assume they kind of already knew that, but I just wanted to make sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Because stuff with the Holy Grail at the end of this chapter is going to get wild, y'all. I just wanted you to understand what the Holy Grail really is before we dive into it. Also, since I said what the Holy Grail really is, I mean, I kind of have to say the conspiracy theory about the Holy Grail. Go for it. So... The legend is that Mary Magdalene fled to France carrying Jesus' blood. And so, of course, the conspiracy theory is that it was not a cup filled with blood, but in fact, Jesus' child. That's like... Oh. I, I can't not say that because it's... I can't not say that because the Grail conspiracy is enough of a thing that I'm sure some of our listeners are shouting at their iPods right now. The Holy Grail isn't a thing. The Holy Grail means that Mary Magdalene carried Jesus' child to France. So I just had to say that just so people are aware of it. Okay, moving on. So anyway, uh, Arthur calls in his beleaguered manservant. It's a squire. It's a squire. I, I, only because a manservant is different from a squire. Yes. Who seems like a nice dude who Arthur is a total dick to. Arthur is terrible to him. His name is Griff, which I have to assume is short for Griffin, which is a weird thing to name a child in medieval England. Griff is a sweetheart. Don't get attached to Griff. Aw, poor Griff. Anyway, Arthur opens up the reliquary that Griff has brought in and pulls out a torch... Bearing the eternal flame, which was made from the burning bush, which you might remember was how God talked to Moses. A bush which burns without being consumed. Mm. Miracle of God. So... I'm guessing, I'm hoping everything else in that reliquary is, uh, you know, fireproof. Well, it's part of the, it's part of the miracle of the fire, is that it does, it didn't consume the bush. So presumably it won't burn other stuff? Yes. David says that he's never seen anything more amazing, and it's like, really? You fought a dragon. You fought multiple dragons. You've been through, like, some heavy stuff. I think a fire that illuminates without consuming is pretty cool it's pretty cool but he's seen so much cool stuff by now okay but it's the difference between watching special effects on television or in the movies and seeing someone do close-up magic right it's like oh that's cool because i can't figure out how that could have been done well i mean but dragons are just biology man (laughs) he's been around close-up magic for his whole life though look how much magic shit his mom owned remember the uh good point good point she had the ring that brings you to your true love and also the the pendant that really unhelpfully told you the assigned gender of your first child. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't great magic. 
the first one was cool. What it lacked in quality and made up for in quantity. So David is going all uh, Law and Order Storybrook. Back in the present, where he's looking through the now mostly empty reliquary. There's like a golden apple in it and some... A couple of vials. Yeah. One one containing what we will later discover is Agrabah Viper Venom. Hmm. Yeah. So David's like, yeah, I just realized I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm not an actual detective. Unlike his daughter. I used to work at a bird sanctuary before I... I don't know, got, what, what's it called again when you're related to someone and they get you a job? Cronyism? Nepotism? Yeah, before I got nepotized into uh, this role. <laughs> he, uh, yeah. King Arthur's like, well, it obviously wasn't your daughter because, like, you can see someone clawed it open and she could have just used magic, so. Although, I mean... If she wanted them to not look for her, she could have just made claw marks on her own. Or something could have happened to it in the, you know, the long stretch of time you don't remember. Or somehow the fact that it's magical could have prevented her from opening it. Mystically. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. (laughs) They're assuming that it's not Emma for now. Which is right. Yeah. Well, King Arthur's assuming it's not Emma. He's taken the lead on this investigation. He basically brought David along to be man candy. Yeah, essentially. Well, I mean, I don't mind this spoiler because it's a spoiler for the end of this episode, not for future episodes, but basically this is just one long thing of King Arthur fucking with David and misleading him. Mm. So, at Granny's diner, Emma's beard and Regina's beard are having a chat. Yeah. So, Hook makes a sexting joke which is just very bizarre oh i i didn't think that was a joke i think he thinks that robin is looking at porn of zelina zelina sent him a picture and it's of the sonogram of the baby that's gestating inside of her but robin describes it as a picture of her uh, of a picture from inside of her which is accurate that's what it is yeah yeah and he's like i'm having kind of mixed emotions because like I'm glad that I'm having a baby because babies are super neat, but I feel bad because the baby I made was with Regina's evil sister, and also I guess my wife is dead. But let's not talk about her. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a nice recap for the audience, and you know what? The show is acknowledging that this is a complex issue emotionally for Robin Hood, so good on it for that, for now. Hook tries to one-up him. Hook's like, oh, you think you've got it bad? My girlfriend is now the source of all evil, and she has a door in her house that I'm not allowed to go through. So Granny interrupts this weird one-upsmanship by giving Hook a to-go order. A to-go order that he says he didn't order, and Robin's like, hey, check out the tag. And the, the check says, meet you on your ship, Emma. Okay, so first of all, Robin Hood is just way too ready to send away Hook to deal with the Dark One. He's like, good luck, bro. I'm going to sit here and keep looking at this sonogram. But more importantly, let's just 
have a brief discussion of how this went down from Granny's point of view. So, did the Dark One, like, call her on the phone? And place an order and ask her to put that note on the bag? Did Granny not have follow-up to any of this? She just drops the food in front of Hook and wanders off somewhere. Granny does not care. Granny's like, hey, I just take the orders. I don't care who they're for or how it's going to get paid for, apparently, because how's Emma pay? I don't know. Maybe Emma gave her a credit card. Dark one bucks. Dark one bucks. <laughs> Remember in Batman and Robin when he had that terrible bat card credit card? Yeah. Now I'm imagining that Emma has some sort of Dark One credit card. Uh. Hook is nothing if not good at following Emma's instructions, and he goes to his ship. And he's like, come on, don't do the horror movie thing. And she's like, I'm going to do the horror movie thing and appear from behind you. Ha ha. He's like, I hate when you do that. She's being, it. She. it's an inverse Batman. Oh, it is an inverse Batman. <laughs> but she's being weirdly chipper here. She's like... Yeah, I'm sorry. I overreacted when I, you know, threw you out of my house because you didn't want to have sex with me and you kept on wanting to go through my secret, secret door. Yeah, so she's like, how about if we just have a picnic lunch and talk about our feelings like we used to, which should be a giant red flag because when have they ever done either of those things? Yeah. So Hook puts the uh, food on the table and Emma jump cuts it into, like, a little picnic. But it's not even a picnic. It's like... An Italian restaurant scene with like one of those Chianti bottle candles and a and a little and a little dish of breadsticks. God, I'm hungry. All right, let's keep going. And Hook's like, "What's going on here?" And she appears in her the outfit she was wearing on the fir- on their first date, the weird, ridiculously virginal getup where she has the you know blonde ponytail and they white sundress and sixpence none the richers kiss me is playing in the background yeah basically and he's like what and she's like come on come on aren't you more comfortable with this no one's more comfortable with that back in the camelot flashback david and arthur are walking through the forest of eternal night yes they have sent away the squires and the horses and david's like as long as i have you alone you are terrible to your servants. And uh, Arthur's like, I can be a hard man to work with. It's worth it if you can power through. You can see the little hip thrusting motions I was doing, but be assured they were there. He also reveals that he wasn't born a king. He was born common. And David's like, really? I used to be a shepherd. And then they do like a common man high five and they like clasp arms And then they have to, like, jump back and do, like, a no homo. Let's talk about our wives, like, a lot right now. Yeah, yeah, because it's okay that that Arthur's hard because Guinevere is soft. She's always giving dudes gifts and smiling at them and giving them handies behind the stables. And David, like, wants to one-up him, so he's like, oh, yeah, Mary Margaret, too, she's super nice and kind and soft, and I'm like... What wife are you married to, dude? And Arthur's like, what? My wife's also a badass. Like, she once yelled really hard at a bird, and the bird exploded because of how tough she is. And David's like, my wife also kills lots of birds. I mean, she could, but she wouldn't because she's Snow White. Because she's so soft and wonderful while also being a badass. 
And then Arthur suggests that they have their two wives, like, face off with each other while they stand and watch. And then they both kind of realize that it's gone too far. And they go back to talking about themselves. He's like, he's like, yeah, so, so my wife did cheat on me with Lancelot, but I, I get it. I'm not an easy person to live with. And David's like, like he said, he's hard. He is hard. And he leads David to Makeout Creek. Well, it's to a dock in a lake. Okay, so who here read slash, I guess, saw uh, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince? Who are you talking to? (laughs) So, this is basically verbatim the scene where they go into, uh, where Dumbledore and Harry go into the caves that Voldemort put his uh, horcrux into. Spoiler alert for Harry Potter. Yeah, David has to cross over this really rickety bridge to get to the center of the lake so that he can get the toadstool. And we, the audience, see that there are dead men inside of this lake. So, you know. It's basically the exact same thing Harry and Dumbledore had to get through to get the uh, locket. And it wasn't even a real locket. Died for nothing. Damn it, Regulus. So David's doing pretty well walking across a wooden bridge. Like, he's getting really close there. But all his motion has attracted the lake zombies. Meanwhile, Rumple's dying. So, yeah. In the present, Rumple is dying, which we know because of the rose that Blue enchanted to shed one petal at a time until... It showed that he was gone. And and Belle says that she's been working on a cure for him. But to, but to finish up the cure, she needs something that touched Rumple before well, he was the Dark One. Well, he was still a man. You know, you could just get Hook. Hook touched him. Funny you should say that. No, seriously, that's... Yeah. Yeah. But... She admits that it's mostly bullshit, but she just needs something to fill her days. Something to keep her busy. So who's running the library now? Uh, It doesn't matter. Anyway, they ask her if anyone's pawned a magic bean, which is a ridiculous question because... No. No one's gonna pawn the magic bean. If you steal a magic bean, it's because you want to go somewhere. So David actually has a pretty clever idea he finds a mystical looking cup and he's like this this will help us find out who's guilty and bell tells him okay but that's not a magic cup that's from doc's birthday you can see it says doctoberfest on it which raises so many questions let's get into it okay so shouldn't all the dwarves have the same birthday because as you will remember they were all hatched out of giant eggs on the same day on the same day. Are you are you thinking that maybe whatever horrifying creature laid those eggs, they count like the egg laying day as their birthdays and they weren't all laid at the same time? How would they know what their egg laying day was? The fairies didn't keep track of that for them. Presumably. Yes. If anything, they should have hatching days. And yes, they should all have the same hatching day. Also, Doc had an Oktoberfest themed birthday party with favors that included engraved cups for everybody. And then... Someone pawned that cup, and Belle gave them money for it? I guess she felt bad for them. Yeah. Or, 
Or was Belle invited and that was her souvenir that she just happened to have sitting out? Oh, that makes so much more sense. Okay. Because we do know uh, Belle used to go drinking in dwarf bars. Yeah, okay. All right, that was Belle's cup. That's okay then. But I'm just... When did they have time to have this party? There, yeah, this race is just so many questions. Why isn't the show about Doctoberfest? Where's our Doctoberfest episode? Do they? Do you think they still do Candle Day or whatever now that? Oh God, like, I forgot about Candle Day. Now that we're like what five curses deep? No, nobody does Candle Day anymore. Who's paying the fairies' rent now? I think the fairies stopped paying rent because Rumpelstiltskin had some sort of power over them, but Regina doesn't, and Emma certainly doesn't. So David goes back to the Camelot encampment. Remember, all of the people of Camelot all have to live in tents outside of the town because, I don't know, Storybrooke is not set up for helping people. So David holds up the cup in front of these people, and he's like, Hey, so this is the cup of bone-melting, agonizing torment, and if you drink from it and you stole from the reliquary, you're going to die. And you're all going to drink from it. And one super credulous guy hops on his horse and takes off. And David's like, yep, that's the guy I gotta kill now. Yeah, right? Okay, David and Arthur get in David's truck and take off, which, by the way... David had his truck ready for this as opposed to his sheriff's car. So he knew that what was going to go down was how it was going to go down. So keep that in mind. Also, David didn't bring a horse. Although I guess the last horse we saw him with was the horse that he gave Henry, which is definitely dead by now. Because Henry has not looked after that thing in years at this point. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, they chase the horse in the truck and then... David tells Arthur to take the wheel, and he quickly explains to him how to drive a car. He's like, pedals make you go faster or slower, wheel thing makes you turn. And that's all Arthur needs. Yeah, and David climbs out of the window and gets into the bed of the truck, and then he picks up a piece of wood that was in the bed of the truck so that he can essentially joust with this guy on the horse, and it works. He uses the wood to knock the guy off the horse, and you know what? That guy is dead now! Oh, yeah. No, that guy is super dead. I mean... He was in a truck, and he hit him with a 2 by 4 and knocked him off a horse. Like, I mean, he's not. It's Griffin, and he's okay. But... No. David! Dude! Dead. Well, I mean, he was trying to run him over at the beginning of the uh, chase. He was on a horse. You were in a truck. Anyway, back in the Camelot flashback... David's still trying to get across this rickety drawbridge. He finally manages to get to Mushroom Island. Toadstool Island. Toadstool Island, where the one super fake toadstool is. Yes, the make-you-grow Super Mario Brothers toadstool. He puts it in his, uh, man satchel. His fanny pack. It's a purse. It's... It's okay. Men used to be able to say purse before... The patriarchy gave them pockets. So he uh, he puts it in his purse, and we did slightly lie to you. It isn't like zombies. It's just enchanted armor from a lake. Yeah, so a bunch of, like, 
Yeah, so a bunch of animated armor gets up on the drawbridge and starts fighting with David. I guess maybe people could have been in there at some point and they just rotted away. I don't know. It's funny because you, you, you made a Harry Potter reference. But if anything, this is reminding me of the Black Knight from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Because David keeps hacking off bits of them and they just keep putting them back on and fighting some more. One of them straight up trips him, which is pretty funny. And he falls into Dead Person Lake. And then he is rescued by his boyfriend, Arthur. Arthur does a dramatic dive into the water to save... It's it's very Little Mermaid. <laughs> Arthur's the Little Mermaid. Because that's what the show needed. More Little Mermaids. Mm. We're on like, what, four or five now? Yeah, he's like four. But... He uh, cradles David's delicate form in his muscular man arms and carries him to safety. You can hear the Whitney Houston blaring in the background. I prefer the Dolly Parton version. You can hear Dolly Parton blaring in the background. No, you're right. It makes more sense to be the Whitney Houston version. So, in Storybook in the Present, Emma has taken the Jolly Roger out to sea because of the implication. (laughs) Oh, dear. And Hook is being the least subtle person on the face of the planet trying to worm information out of her. Well, I mean, he's not trying to worm information out of her. He is saying, like, we need to have a talk. And she says, okay, ask me questions. And, like, she'll she'll answer them, but... I mean, but she's not really. He's like, okay, what's behind the door? She's like, aha, I'm not going to tell you. Yeah. I mean, that Which is, is an, an answer. answer. But not really what he was looking for. And he's like, are you even you anymore? Or are you just Dark one And she's like, I am me. I'm just me with better superpowers. Also, she says that she's her but better. And then she brings up Rumple and, and says what we've been screaming for years, which is that before Rumple was the Dark One, he was not a good man. He was a coward and terrible. And yeah, he turned evil, but he was a better person. And since Dark One Rumple killed Hook's wife, Mila, Hook's not really happy with that explanation of what the Dark One stuff does to you. But Emma's like, yeah, he wasn't great to Mila, but look at the kind of person he was before. He was this whiny little coward. You, you said he was groveling before you, which launches Hook into the story of how he was the real bad guy in... His story with Rumpel, I mean, I guess in the first part he was. No, he wasn't. The thing, the only thing that would have made him the bad guy in that story is that he stole Mila. But guess what? She's a human being with agency who chose Hook. So no, he's only the bad guy if you assume that Mila had no agency. So I think Hook kind of assumes that women have no agency. Which tracks because we've seen him treat Belle like she's nothing but a pawn to get back at Rumple, And I have now come full 180 on my detestation of Hook. So Hook pulls out his sword and he shows it to him and he's like, I was the bad guy in our first meeting. I held this sword to his throat. I touched this sword on his undark one throat and took his wife. Okay, so I know that you're, like, emphasizing this a lot, but it isn't that obvious. It isn't as obvious as you're making it, and I thought it was a really cool twist. Hmm. Just throwing it out there, I didn't get it until the show revealed it, so. So, 
Emma's like, look, if you don't want to do this, fine. We won't do this. I can be done. She says, I just want to know, do you love me? And he says, I loved you. Pretty sick burn. Oh, sore through the heart. If she had one still, which she doesn't, it's okay. So he's all like, well, I guess I'm going to, you know, be mermaid chow. And she's like, God, whatever. Do you not get this? I'm not going to kill you. Like, this is your ship. We were just having a conversation. And then she dark one bamps away. So much of this season is people not trusting Emma because she has different powers now. Yeah. That's that's an accurate statement. Yeah. Anyway, back in the Camelot flashback, David and Arthur are recovering on the on the lake bed. When David checks his purse and lo and behold, the mushroom is gone. He crossed that bridge for nothing. And Arthur's like, you must have lost it in the fight, but all that matters is that you're okay. He has a thing about how it's not the destination, it's the journey that matters. and Yeah, the journey, because it's during the journey that you stay at all of those hotels and have all that hot hotel room sex. And the two of them have a bro moment where uh, David talks about his dad, how his dad was a drunk and his brother was evil and he thought that he'd be different, but he's just an incompetent murderer. Not someone who is incompetent at murdering, but a murderer who is also incompetent. And that he fears that he's the only thing that was notable in his life was that he kissed Mary Margaret 30 years ago when she was under a curse. Not wrong, dude. Not wrong. Yeah, and Arthur's like, whatever. A rock told me I was going to be king. You know what I did? I manned the fuck up and became king. So you could, you know, be a whiny little whiner, or you could be my whiny little whiner. Indeed. So David decides since they don't have the toadstool, I guess they're done and they're just going to go home now. Yeah, so he just kind of gave up on that. Yeah, they gave up pretty fast. Well, David gave up pretty fast. And and King Arthur, okay, you remember you remember at the end of the first season when Regina said that she needed to get the savior to taste her forbidden fruit? Yeah, that was the that was, for a very long time, the gayest line that the show has had. Oh, definitely. I don't think anything could top it. But what might give it a run for its money is King Arthur telling him that if he wants to do something that matters, if he wants to be someone that matters, Arthur has a place for a man like him. Oh, my. And once we see where that place is... Does, does King Arthur want David to fill his seat? Uh, King Arthur might have an opening in his table for him. Oh my. A sheath for a sword, if you will. Does that make David Excalibur? That would make David Excalibur. Hmm, interesting. So, David is interrogating poor Griff. Yes, he's found all of the stuff in Griff's bag, 
Except the magic bean. Except the magic bean. And Griff's all like, look, there wasn't a bean in there. I just stole all this stuff, so... King Arthur would notice me. No. Yeah. It's because he's like, look, I've... King Arthur's been being a shitty boss to me for forever. I... I just wanted him to stop. Which maybe stealing things isn't the best way to get a room. But, I mean... I can see that. It's sort of like uh, Linda from Better Off Ted when she was stealing creamer at the beginning of the show because she felt so powerless in the company. Yeah, that makes sense. And Or Dawn in season six and Buffy. Yeah, she just needed to feel in control, so she was shoplifting from the magic box. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David and Arthur decide that he's telling the truth about there not being a magic bean there, and, oh, well, I guess there was no magic bean. We must have used it in that six weeks. Hmm. And David's like, okay, well, this is all settled. Let's just lock him in jail for no reason. But he does find, as he's going to throw poor Griff in jail, he's he finds the Super Mario Mushroom. Yeah, the toadstool. And they've had their memories erased, but David recognizes it from the book that Regina found her bookmark in at the beginning of the episode. Not the book, the book. But one of Merlin's books full of mystical crap that they were going through to try to figure out what happened. Yep, so now they have the mushroom that can be used to communicate through magical barriers. Neat. Yep. Think they're going to ask Dopey if he's okay? (laughs) Who? (laughs) Yeah. So they're going to communicate with him. They're going to try to use the mushroom to communicate with Merlin. You know, like how they communicated with Korra? In the Zelina season. And everything worked out fine. Everything worked out great for everyone. So they spend a lot of time, not a lot of time, but we get a lot of panning shots of the Camelot Castle. I wonder what that's about. Do you think they spent a lot of time on the model and they just wanted to show it off? Or No, I think those are filling, I think those are filling precious seconds that they didn't have enough show for. Mm. Anyway, back in the Camelot flashback. King Arthur is trying to... King Arthur has dressed David in, like, ridiculous gold armor. And... It kind of reminds me of the ridiculous gold sword that Midas gave to James. Yeah. Yeah, he's showing off his new fancy boy to the entire court, and he tells David, I finally found someone worthy to fill my seat. Yeah, David is going to sit in the Siege Perilous. And let me tell you, if there is anyone less suited to seek the Holy Grail than all of King Arthur's court, it is David Nolan. I know we've been leaning a lot this episode on the King Arthur super gay thing, but I I just really want to point out, he literally tells David that he's the best man to fill his seat. I feel like we're watching the beginning of, like, gay porn well i want to be clear that when we talk about the relationship between david and arthur we're not making gay jokes we're acknowledging that the show is presenting us with a romance and then gaslighting us by telling us that's not what it is i wouldn't say that i wasn't not making it it's not like making gay jokes though it's that this literally seems like porn because there is chemistry between the actors and the acting is terrible. Right, yes. But we're not saying that any two men who have a friendship yeah. is necessarily a romance. Just that this one is. Yes, exactly. That this is playing on a lot of tropes from gay porn. But anyway. 
David gets to be King Arthur's fancy boy and sit in his fancy chair. And everyone applauds. And everyone clapped. Except for Snow, whose baby cries as a pretext to get her out of the uh, room. All the clapping makes Neil wake up, so Mary Margaret has to leave the room to deal with the crying baby. Okay, I just want to say, we pan across the crowd while they're clapping, and I really like Henry's outfit. We see it for like 10 seconds. Yeah, I just, I really like Henry's outfit, and it seems weird that it's not in this very much. Well, I think they probably shot these scenes oddly. Henry's not in this episode, like, at all. And I have to assume that they shot a lot of the Camelot stuff all in a row, so we'll see him later. And those scenes will have been shot on the same day. Mm. So Snow goes out into the hallway, which, of course, immediately shuts her baby up, because... Baby Neil knows when plot's coming. And and not just plot is coming. So is this the first uh, ungoing off of the death clock? Yeah, yeah. Reason- I mean, I don't remember if this is actually Lancelot, but oh, Lancelot shows up. Yeah, reset that death clock because Lancelot is back. Good for him. If this is him and not someone disguised as him. It's been a while since we saw this season. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Lancelot. Anyway, he tells Mary Margaret not to worry about how he's back from the dead. Yeah, she's like, I heard you died. And he's like, nope. Yeah, But she... I don't have time to get into it now. Yeah, he tells Mary Margaret that instead she should worry about the fact that King Arthur is soups evil. So we cut to later in the day. The room is empty. The round table room is empty except for Arthur and Guinevere. And they're kind of debriefing each other. Yeah. See, turns out Arthur pocketed the uh, mushroom when he was going all Ariel and Eric on the beach with David. Yeah, because it's important that they not free Merlin, apparently. Or at least not be able to communicate with him. And Arthur ominously talks about how, you know, that's the burden of being a king. And you know what? This would have been an awesome revealing reveal to go out on, but there's still seven more minutes of episode. Ugh. Uh, we cut back to the modern day where poor Griff is in jail. And is he so not happy about being locked up. He is alone in the jail with Arthur. And he's like, dude, I did exactly what you said to do. I pretended to steal the relics. I told their stupid sheriff. I told him there was a magic bean, even though there's not. And Arthur tells him, look, we're in a realm full of really bad people who do really bad things, which... Accurate. Right? Like, I know that we know that Arthur is evil, quote unquote, but these people are not good. So he's like, I need to do everything I can to protect the people of my kingdom, and of our kingdom. And sometimes that means, you know killing the members of our kingdom yeah so he tells griff that this lie was necessary because they somehow had to lead david and mary margaret in this direction and now he needs griff to kill himself because they will totally torture the truth out of him which again probably not entirely inaccurate okay so So King Arthur says that there is no magic bean, 
He needed to hide that information from the people of Storybrooke because this is going to need to become the new Camelot. This is what he says to Griff. Yeah, I don't really understand what Arthur's plan was with David thinking that stuff had been stolen from the reliquary. I think it's so he wouldn't ask questions if stuff was missing, but then why no, did no. he lead him to Griff? No, he, David didn't know that the reliquary existed. Yeah, I I, I don't get this. May, may... He wanted David to think there was a magic bean, but then he wanted him to just write it off and, and think that they must have used it during the six weeks that are erased from their memories. You could have done nothing. Yeah. Nothing would have accomplished the exact same ends, and also now you wouldn't be telling Griffin he has to kill himself. This whole thing is really weird, and it goes back to what you were saying last week, Max. This season is really hard to enjoy when the show is so determined to hide people's motivations from you. Why should I care whether or not Arthur is evil when I have no idea what he wants? I feel bad for Griff, though. He died for nothing? Honestly, this would be a really good scene if they played more with Arthur as this sort of super manipulative character because he talks Griff into killing himself. He gives Griff the Agrabah Viper Venom. And by the way, we saw that used to kill King Leopold a few years ago. But when Griffin takes it, not only does it kill him, but he vanishes. Yeah, his corpse poofs away. He takes it for, uh, it's super cute. He toasts to Camelot before he takes it. Because Arthur's like, this is the only way we can protect our people. And Griff's like, okay. It's weird that she said cute instead of tragic, which is what it is, but okay. I feel bad for Griff. Yeah, it's tragic. It's weird how they built, they managed to very, they did a great job building a lot of sympathy for this character whose only role is to get framed and die. I feel so much more for him than I feel for anyone else other than Merlin in Camelot. Yeah, right? Well, you know what? I think that's because we understand his motivations. He wants to be a knight of the round table, and lacking that, he's willing to give his life to protect the ideals of Camelot. You feel for Griff because they've created a character with motivation. This is like screenwriting 101. Yeah, we meet a character, we find out his hardships, we find out his motivations. Like, this is all in, like, a three-minute subplot that's just to establish how evil Arthur is. I mean, what's my motivation is actor cliche for a reason. You can't just decide that no one has any. Or that you're going to make the audience not know what it is. And, oh, okay. I... So sometimes the audience does not know a character's true motivations because the character is duplicitous. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes screenwriters get confused and think that they can create the same kind of twist and tension by just not telling the audience what it is. But you can't just hide information from the audience. We get annoyed. You have to misdirect the audience. We have to believe that there is a story there that we're not seeing. Not that you're just covering up nothing. Yeah, you can't just... I mean, not to go back to the most perfect Bob's Burger moment that really encapsulates that, but at the end of her dinner theater where she says, I was the murderer, 
And they said, but you told us at the beginning you weren't the murderer. She says, that's the twist. It's not a twist. A lie is not a twist. A lie is not a twist. Anyway, now we're in the diner. Yeah, Hook is meeting up with Robin for, are they in the man pain club now? They are in the man, they are in the man pain club. And side note, has Robin just been in this diner all day? What what else would he do all day? Is he the one running the bike festival? It was a bike safety seminar, but good point, good point. So, uh, Hook's like, hey, so I need you to break into Emma's secret door. And Robin's like, I'm not a thief anymore. And And Hook's like, okay, but you still have the skills, right, to thieve? Because that's what I'm asking you to do. This was, what, Robin's fifth last job? And that's, like, my, what, seventh, this is their blank thing? They're just reusing so much. I know, you have no choice, really. Anyway, we get we don't have to pay attention to that because on the other side of the diner, Belle is picking up a sandwich and being food shamed by Granny when all of a sudden the last petal on the rose falls, but then all of the petals get sucked back up, which Belle understands to mean that Rumpel has woken up and is okay now. Okay. Sure. Why not? So she goes running into Gold Shop to own to find out that is this the first season again? Because someone's stealing coma patients. Yeah, it's true. Gold is missing. And in fact, he is in Emma's creepy basement room. It turns out her whole date with Hook was just to find something that Rumpel had touched before becoming the Dark One so she could wake him up. I didn't even think it was to find out. I thought it was just to steal the cutlass, which is what she did. She turns the cutlass to ashes in order to complete the spell that Belle had started to wake him up. Yes. So Rumple is awake now, but also he's imprisoned by the Dark One. So, you know, not yeah. sure if he's in a better position. So she leans down to Rumple's now conscious form and she's like, So you got evil liposuction at the end of the last season. Uh, you're basically a blank slate morality-wise. Yeah. She's like, So I'm just going to take this empty vessel and fill it up with good so that you can get Excalibur for me. I'm going to make you super pure so you'll be able to pull the sword from the stone. And I just love the Rumpelstiltskin in Emma's head is just nodding really excitedly. He's like, yeah, do that. Yeah, we have the dark one in Emma's head's like, yeah, do it, do it, man. And the Rumpelstiltskin that's just Rumpelstiltskin's like, what? So that was this episode. Yes, it was. A whole bunch of stuff kind of happened, I guess. Well, let's talk about the fashion. Okay, so it was on screen for like 10 seconds, but I really liked Henry's outfit. It was like just this white shirt with kind of gold lining and this sort of white throwover cape. It looked really good. It looked it looked like what you would expect a prince to be wearing for his everyday wear when he was not actively fighting evil. So David had red armor, which did not look great, and gold armor, which looked silly. You know what, though? I kind of liked what Belle was wearing, which was just a really simple red circle skirt with a white button-up blouse. But she looked very classy. I thought she looked great. I actually enjoy most of the women's uh, fairy tale fashions. Well, the, oh, yes. Yeah. How, I'm sorry. How did I forget to bring up the fairy tale fashions? Because... Regina, for the first, well, first of all, when we, I, I do have to say that when we were watching this episode, 
I was like, Max, Lana Perea is so pretty. She is. She's gorgeous. I don't know if you've captured that from us thus far, but it's true. But Lana Perea, but Regina was wearing for the first time, chronologically, not on screen, but for the first time chronologically, was wearing the red dress that is the same as the red dress that Emma wore when she was pretending to be Leia. It's pretty cool. Yes. And Belle was wearing a pretty medieval dress in green as well. Yeah. All the medieval fashions are good. I mean, not surprisingly, they cast women who look good in Ren Faire outfits because, first of all, like 90% of people look good in Ren Faire outfits. It's a good look. And secondly... Mary Margaret actually has flattering cuts on her now. Yeah. Like, the way her dresses are designed are really flattering. I know that sounds like a backhanded compliment, but it's just, it's nice to see her dressing well. Yeah, I whoever she pissed off in the costume department either quit or she brought them cookies. I don't know, one of those two things happened. <laughs> She's not wearing the dental hygienist outfit anymore. And I guess that's about it. There were a couple of references to... There were a couple of references to Disney movies, specifically The Doors Whistling Hi-Ho. And at one part, King Arthur tells David that he needs to be prepared. Which I think might have been foreshadowing for the reveal that he's evil. Yeah, I could see that. But I guess that's basically it. We uh, need to come up with some more... uh, Segments? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that'll do us for this week. So until next week. This show is partially listener-supported. If you would like to be one of our patrons, you could go over to our website, ilovetelevisionzines.com, and click on the Patreon link. While you're there, you can also listen to past episodes of the show. We'd like to thank our current $5 and above patrons, Beryl, Patricia, Cassidy, Alec, Alex, Alicia, and Ryan. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can also rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. If you want to talk about this show, head over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash ilovetelevisionzines. We can also be contacted at ilovetvzines on Twitter or at ilovetelevisionzines at gmail.com. So until next time, I'm Tina. And I'm Max. And this has been Welcome to Storybrooke. Bye.